Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is December 15th, 2014, and my guest is Joshua Angrist, the Ford Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's the author with Steve Pischke of the book Mastering Metrics, and also with Pischke, the author of The Credibility Revolution in Empirical Economics, How Better Research Design is Taking the Con Out of Econometrics, which was published in the Journal of Economic Perspectives in the spring of 2010. That article and the book are our topic for today's conversation. I want to thank David Beckworth and Adam Ozimek for suggesting Professor Angrist. Josh, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks, Russ. It's a pleasure to be talking to you this morning. So the world's a complex place, and the goal of econometrics is usually to try to assess the impact of one variable on another. What are some of the techniques that uh, the field uses to do that? Well, uh, economics or applied economics is evolving, uh, but um, uh, there and there are, there are many different ways to to look at the causal relationships, uh, the effect of something on something else. I have my favorites, and those are those are outlined in the book and um, in the article in the JEP you mentioned, and uh, in our other book, uh, the other book I wrote with Steve, mostly harmless econometrics, which is focused on graduate students. The, um, we, we take as an ideal the uh, kind of randomized trial or, or uh, field trial that's often used in medicine to uh, determine cause and effect or to gauge cause and effect, and that's increasingly popular uh, in, uh, in empirical work in economics and, and in other social sciences. An important theme of my work and um, the book, the new book in particular, is that even um, when we can't do a real randomized trial in the sense of going out and dividing people up into comparable treatment and control groups as if by a coin toss, there are methods that we can use, uh, econometric methods that we that we hope will approximate that. And how do they do that? Well, different ways, different methods, different ways. Um different sorts of assumptions. Everything, of course, is built on assumptions, and we're always alert to the foundation of our work and the need to probe it and see see whether it's solid and whether it supports the conclusions that we are trying to draw. The simplest empirical strategy, uh, we, we, we identify uh, five core methods in the new book. Uh, the first one is is the randomized trial, and that that's both a method and, and an ideal or a model where uh, people are actually divided uh, on the basis of random assignment. And we have two uh, very important examples where that was done in social science, both related to healthcare. The first one is the RAND, uh, the RAND uh, health insurance experiment from the 1970s, which is really a, a landmark in our field. And the second one is uh, much more recent work by uh, my colleague Amy Finkelstein and, 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 a, and a team of co-authors looking at random assignment of health insurance in Oregon. So that's uh, both uh, showing how it can be done and uh, and uh, explaining why it's valuable. The the other alternative the, that that is the non-experimental approximations of of random assignment involve various sorts of strategies. Uh, the first of these and the most common is just uh, regression, which uh, I imagine many of of your listeners will be familiar with. Regression is just a way to uh, control for things, to try to hold the characteristics of groups that you're trying to, to compare fixed. So there's an example in the new book where we're trying to assess, or rather the question uh, is uh, the, the economic returns to going to a more selective college or a private college. This is based on uh, empirical work by uh, Alan Kruger and Stacey Dale. And uh, the idea is that we can produce a well-controlled comparison by knowing the schools to which you applied and uh, where you were admitted. And this produces a very striking finding, which is if we compare 
people who went to, say, private colleges, think about uh, perhaps uh, Boston University versus UMass, or even Harvard and, and MIT versus UMass, sort of naively, you'll see that the people who went to the expensive private colleges earn a lot more. But conditional on where people were admitted, uh, they do about equally well. There's, there's no advantage, and that suggests that most of the observed difference, perhaps all of the observed difference in earnings between people who went to private and public universities is, is due to the fact that the people who went to the uh, private universities were destined to do better anyway. They were, on average, people who were either more ambitious or had higher test scores but that, that, those characteristics are reflected in their application decisions and, and their admissions results. Conditional on where they applied and where they got in, um, there doesn't seem to be any earnings advantage. So that, that's the, uh, the example we use to illustrate regression. Of course, it isn't really a randomized trial, but we can tell that it looks very well controlled because we can see that after appropriate conditioning, and in this case, we think appropriate means holding fixed an individual's own assessment of how qualified they are for different sorts of schools. And of course, by, we're also holding the admissions office's decisions uh, constant, uh, how, how the admissions office gauged the applicants. Um, conditional on that, um, it looks like a good experiment in the sense that people who went to different sorts of schools uh, have similar family backgrounds and they have similar uh, measures of ability like SAT scores. This is not so, a uh, this is not a finding that this is not a finding that you um, wave around too much in front of your say administration, presumably. In fact, it's a little awkward. <laughs> uh, I work at a very selective school, and I'm yeah. friendly with our uh, admissions officer, uh, head of admissions here, uh, and uh, we discuss these these results uh, fairly often. Um, there may be reasons why you'd like to come to MIT besides. The earnings advantage it's likely to give you. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, uh, But uh, certainly on economic grounds alone, I'm not speaking specifically about MIT, but uh, the difference between Penn and Penn State is not apparent in the data. And So that's a very striking finding, and it shows the power of regression to uh, produce a better, a more well-controlled comparison if not a slam dunk, and in particular to eliminate some of the obvious sources of selection bias that are likely to be misleading. Let me just say parenthetically, uh, selection bias is, is an econometric term for differences observed between groups that are not, in fact, causal effects. So, uh, for example, we observe that people who have health insurance are healthier than people who don't. That's mostly selection bias. The people who can afford or have access to health insurance tend to be healthier people without regard to the fact that they have the insurance. And we know that actually from uh, the results in the RAND study and from uh, Amy Finkelstein's work. I want to come back to, to that in a second. I just first I want to say something nice about your book. Um, there's something that uh, is very special about the book. It's a real rarity in uh, economics uh, writing, as, as at least in my experience, which is that it's mainly about the intuition and less about the formal results. The formal results are there, but they're in the appendix. Usually it's the other way around. We put the formal results mm -hmm. in the book, and then in a footnote or two, we say, oh, by the way, you should take this into account, or we're trying, that's what this is trying to accomplish. But what I love about the book is it's really an extended conversation about the nuance and art and craft of econometrics, which is something I think is... Uh, extraordinarily missing from both the literature and the instruction. Uh, when I taught econometric uh, or statistical analysis to master's students, uh, mm -hmm. I wanted to teach them how to think like an econometrician, not what the formal results are. And it's remarkable how difficult it is to find material to help people to do that. The easy thing, of course, is just to give people tests on various formal results and uh, and they're yeah. easy to grade and but to teach people and to grade them on, you know, craft is really, I think, the gold standard. And um, your book's really a, a step in that direction. Well, that's wonderful that that you see the value in that. Steve and I both, um, of course, we're we're researchers, but we're also teachers, and um, we we um, we're well aware of the enormous gulf between the way econometrics is taught and and the way it's done, and. 
we see our, our job in, in this book and also in Mostly Harmless, our earlier book for graduate students, to try to bridge the gap and, and, and between econometric practice and econometric, um, the, the, the econometric syllabus. And uh, I, I hope that we're successful in that. That's really what we're trying to do. Now, having, um, having said that, I have some disagreements with it. So let, let's turn to some of those. Okay, um, I didn't finish all the other. Uh, oh yeah, methods. keep going. No, I keep don't know going. If you want me to go through? No, those. please do. Go ahead. Um, so, so we start with random assignment. We talk about regression next, not because it's the best method, but because it's 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 a natural starting place. And I can't imagine uh, seeing a, an empirical paper about cause and effect which doesn't at least show me the author's uh, best effort at some kind of regression estimates. Uh, where they control for the observed differences between groups. That that may not be the last word, but it ought to be it ought to be the first word. Um, the other methods are instrumental variables, regression discontinuity designs, and um, differences and differences. Uh, each of these is an attempt to to uh, generate some kind of apples to apples comparison out of observational data. That is data that we're not. Uh, generated by some sort of purposeful random assignment on the on on the part of researchers, instrumental variables is a is a strategy for leveraging naturally occurring random assignment, and or, or something that looks like naturally occurring random assignment. So the example we start with there is um, the uh, uh, well. Let me add also that sometimes instrumental variables is a method for leveraging experimental random assignment in complicated experiments where the treatment itself cannot be manipulated, but there's an element of manipulation in the treatment. There's a kind of a, a partial manipulation. The first example in the instrumental variables chapter is a, is a study of charter schools. Uh, and with, there we're interested in whether kids who, who go to charter schools, charter schools are, are, are essentially publicly funded private schools. Uh, an important part of education reform that's uh, uh, growing in, in many states, uh, including Massachusetts, where I live, uh, but also uh, elsewhere, uh, like uh, New Orleans is now an all-charter district in the, in the recovery school district in New Orleans. So there's a big controversy about the sort of semi-privatization of public schools, at least insofar as their operation goes, and a big debate about whether the Charter schools are, are actually doing better than the public schools that they uh, that they serve alongside uh, with, or even replace in some cases. So to answer that question, we use the fact that oversubscribed charter schools pick their students by lottery, and um, that is when they have more applicants than seats, they use a lottery to allocate the seats, and that creates an instrumental variable situation where we compare kids who are and are not offered seats at a charter school, and then we adjust for the difference in the likelihood of, of attending the charter school that, that that tool generates, that that manipulation generates. And that's a great simple example of, of IV uh, estimation of causal effects. We also have an example from a randomized trial where the intervention is uh, the arrest of suspected batterers in the cases, uh, cases of domestic abuse in the city of Minneapolis. This is a this is a real randomized trial. It's a very famous uh, criminological study from the 1980s. In that study, police officers who were called to the scene in, in cases where there was a presumption of, of some kind of assault, uh, ordinarily the policeman has to make a decision about how to handle it. In this case, the policeman was encouraged by virtue of random assignment to different strategies to either arrest the suspected batterer or simply to separate the parties or refer them to counseling. And uh, this is an IV situation because you can't actually tell the police what to do. They have to be free to make their own calls, both in the interest of their own safety and in the safety, interest of the safety of the, the victims on the scene. So there's an element of random assignment, but there's deviation from random assignment. It turns out that instrumental variables is the ideal tool to analyze that sort of scenario, which is quite common in field trials that involve people and the, the messiness of, of social policy. So those are two, two out of three of the IV examples. The, the next chapter discusses regression discontinuity designs, which is growing in importance. Regression discontinuity designs are research designs, uh, non-experimental research designs that attempt to mimic an experiment by using the rules that, that determine 
allocation to treatment states. So uh, an example there is um, uh, somewhat along one of the examples there is very much along the lines of the regression study I mentioned. Instead of elite colleges, uh, one of the uh, applications in the RD chapter is uh, is uh, to the study of, of elite high schools. And that's based on some work that my colleagues, uh, Tel Abdul Khadur Rogro Pragpazik, and I did um, on uh, legendary elite high schools like uh, Boston Latin School and uh, New York Stuyvesant. And we used the fact that the, those schools admit kids on the basis of a cutoff. So you have a test score. It isn't exactly a test score. It's kind of an index. It's based on your GPA and your tests, your admissions tests. And they, they admit you according to whether you fall above or below a threshold. And, and the idea there is that very small changes in test scores are arbitrary. So that if I look at kids who have scores just above and just below the cutoff, they're likely to be quite similar in terms of their family background, motivation, and so on. And so that's something like a randomized trial. They, the, the question of whether a kid is uh, slightly above the cutoff or slightly below is uh, serendipitous. And so we can compare the achievement of kids across that threshold and gauge the value of, of education in an elite high school. And just as in the, uh, the analysis of elite colleges, the uh, RD study of elite high schools shows no, uh, in this case, no achievement advantage for kids who go to these more elite schools, in spite of the fact that their peers are much better. So uh, we're also relating that work to the the age-old question in social science of, of peer effects, whether uh, whether I benefit from, from studying or working with more productive or more talented uh, colleagues, co-workers, and classmates. The RD uh, is particularly interesting because it's relatively new in economics. When I was in graduate school, I, I did not learn about RD and, and really didn't hear about RD until I had been working as an assistant professor uh, for a few years, but now RD is is one of our core methods and uh, probably one of our most convincing non-experimental methods. So Steve and I are especially pleased to to kind of bring that into the undergraduate curriculum. It's not commonly found in the in the mainline textbooks. That's uh, regression discontinuity. RD, right? So RD is regression discontinuity. So I want to come to what I think is the heart of the matter, which is the convincing part. Um, since I'm kind of a skeptic, and I want to, mm-hmm. I want to, um, I want to be on the couch, and you, you can um, you can counsel me uh, and give me some uh, some cheer. So when I look at these results, um, I sort of I have two issues. One is um, is a theoretical point, which which Lemur and Sims bring up in their response to your 2010 article. So. Your article, your title is playing on the 1983 paper by Ed Lemer, which yeah, is one, "Let's Take the Con Out of Econometrics." And Ed's, right, wonderful paper. I, I read it uh, with with great pleasure in graduate school. So Ed, Ed's been a guest on this program uh, before a number of times, and we've talked specifically mm-hmm. about that article. That article great. was worried about the fact that that uh, most of us don't get to go into the kitchen and see the enormous range of possible models that an, an, an economist might try. And Lemur claims that as a result of that, the, st- the classical statistical uh, significance tests really go out the window. Uh, and we're kind of at the mercy of the researcher because we don't know uh, the, the, the range of stuff that was tried and not tried. And I, and I have to mention George Stigler here who once once told me that when you know when he was in graduate school, since it took such an immense effort to run a regression, you picked the one or two that you thought were the best ideas, and you ran them, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. took a long, long time to make the calculations. Basically, they were done by hand with giant calculators, yeah. and then you hoped you found something, and that was it. And of course, today's mm-hmm. world, you just hit return. Um, just you can just do uh, lots and lots of of, of data mining. And Lemur was worried about that. And your, one of your points, before we get to this issue of convincing specifically, is one of your points is that perhaps ironically, uh, you make the argument that things have gotten a lot better since Lemur wrote that article, but not based on his remedy. So talk about what his remedy was and why you think that has not been a route that people have taken. 
Well, you know, I think the question is whether what Lemur was complaining about is what is, is the most important problem that applied econometricians face. It, Lemur was essentially saying that there's a lot of specification search and there's selective reporting. And um, and his solution, know, a lot of his, truth. his solution was very radical, right? His suggestion was an immensely uh, honest sensitivity analysis of basically saying, if you combine all the possible variations of these variables we have, how big a range do we have for the variable yeah. we care about? And the yeah, answer is usually Lieber, not very Lieber's much. A Bayesian, he's a fairly committed Bayesian, at least in his writing, uh, if not in person. And he was proposing a fairly um, conventional, as I saw it, Bayesian approach where you would state your priors and you would you would then show how that maps. And he also had the idea that we should show um, many variations. Let me say at the outset that Lemur had a huge impact on me and, and I think on empirical work all to the good that he, his, his complaining about, you know, the kind of arbitrariness of what I report uh, filtered into empirical practice in the form of robustness checks in the sense that re researchers today are um, expected to report you know, plausible variations on what they've done. A uh, great example of that is from my own work. This is also in the new book. In the chapter on differences and differences, where you compare changes instead of levels, it's essentially a panel data method. The idea is that treatment and control groups move in parallel in the absence of treatment. And, and that's a testable hypothesis and, and a very simple check on that is to allow some departure from parallelism into your models. And the easiest way to do that is to introduce, if it's a state-based panel, the easiest way to do that is some kind of state-specific trend. And many panel examples do not survive that in the sense that the treatment effect of interest either disappears or becomes not, not very well identified, not very precisely estimated when you do that. And uh, mostly Harmus had an example of that. And the new book has an example from my own work where we're trying to use compulsory attendance laws at the beginning of the 20th century by state and year of birth. And uh, that that's the source of variation in schooling we want to exploit. And when you put in a state-specific trend, it, it disappears. That so, so that kind of idea that you owe it to your readers to both understand, explain, and probe the fundamental assumptions that drive your results, uh, well taken. And I think we, we have to credit Lemur's article for highlighting that and, and bringing that into um, modern empirical practice. An extreme version of that, which is also emerging among my contemporaries, is that when I do a randomized trial, I might actually pre-commit to the analyses yeah. that uh, yeah. I plan to do. And, and that's, that's, a, yeah. that's also a good development. Shout it out. That's a, that's a, a sign of maturity that we're willing to do that. I, I have mixed feelings about it because I don't, I don't do a lot of randomized trials, and I think the idea of pre-commitment becomes very difficult in some of the research designs that I use where you really need to see the data before you can decide how to analyze them. You're not sure what's going to work. The, uh, that said, uh, when you can pre-commit, that's a wonderful thing and it produces especially convincing findings. The, the idea that I should show the world a complete mapping of all possible models and that that's the key to good empirical work. I did disagree with that at the time and I still do. Um, and that's reflected in the article with Steve, uh, in the JP. The, the reason that most empirical work was not convincing in the age of, say, Stigler and, and um, until more recently was not because there was inadequate specification testing, but because the research designs were lousy. The, the example that uh, Steve and I gave is uh, from work by uh, Isaac Ehrlich, uh, very influential papers on the effects of capital yep. punishment. Part of my now, that's a great question, and, and I don't want to single Ehrlich out for um, doing a particularly um, sloppy job or anything like that. But, the, you know, I'm not too interested in how sensitive his findings are to uh, the sort of variation Lemur is describing because I didn't find any of it convincing. He, he really did not lay out a clear case for his research design. A core, core concept in my work with um, – in my writing with Steve and, and the research methods that I think are most effective is the notion of design. 
the notion of design in a in a in a in an experiment of course is how you set up the experiment who got allocated what you were conditioning on what the strata are and so on in an observational study design is 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 about how you're mimicking that trial so when i talk about um, RD and I'm using RD regression discontinuity methods to, to estimate the effects of, of going to an exam school. Uh, you know, the design there is that I'm comparing people above and below the test score cutoff. And if that design is convincing, it'll satisfy uh, certain criteria, which I then owe my reader. But I certainly don't owe my, my readers an account of all possible strategies. Uh, I'd really do build it from my proposed design. Okay, so let me and uh, let me let me sure. react to that. So um, I remember very vividly when the Ehrlich study came out, and uh, at the time, I was a proponent of the death penalty. I don't couldn't expect exactly tell you why. Uh, that would be an unanswerable question. But when it came out, I thought, and I was very naive and very young. I thought, well, oh, well, oh, oh, see, it's proved. Uh, of course, it wasn't, and of course, I think if you were not a proponent, and I, we don't need to go into your personal views uh, on this because I don't. I think it's a general issue. If you're not a proponent. Oh, yeah, that was a terrible study. Didn't control for this. Didn't control for that. People who were more sympathetic to the outcome of the findings of the study, I think, were more likely to believe that it was a good study. And if he had been more thorough, I suspect those of us who were biased toward the finding might have been a little bit more embarrassed to wave it around. I, I wasn't in any position to wave it around, so that isn't. Exactly my point, but uh, I well, Ehrlich's problem is not thoroughness. That's what I'm saying. Ehrlich's problem was the lack of a design, and I mean, I, I think it's probably not that important to you know Ehrlich's work was based on small samples and predates most of the methods, except for basic regression methods yeah. Yeah, that true. are highlighted in the book. At, at a minimum, we'd like to study capital punishment. We would use a state panel, for example. And we'd take out state effects. That is, we would use, basically, we would use the differences and differences method. And that's been done, and there are references in the, um, in the article that Steve and I wrote. Um, you know, Ehrlich's work, it's important because it was intellectually important at the time. It's not of any empirical significance. I don't think any social scientist of my generation would look at Ehrlich's regressions and say they're worth reacting to. No, of course but there not. Are other, there are other papers. There are other papers in the article about capital punishment. If you want, I can look at it quickly. Though I don't think it's no, to our discussion. Yeah, I, I want to stick. Do a much better job. Yeah, I want to stick with the more and general. That are worth, yeah, and the, but but you know somebody, for example, who proposes to study, study capital punishment because you know the state of New York uh, decides not to use it or outlaws it. Um, you know that person potentially has a good design. And I can tell that person, that researcher, exactly what he needs to do to convince me of that finding. And it won't be what Lemur suggested, which is a sort of all hands on deck, uh, all specifications are created equal specification search, uh, sorry, specification sensitivity analysis. But rather, I know what differences and differences depends on. And again, this is a theme of, of both, both of my books with Steve. We know what that method turns on. It turns on parallel trends. We always say that. It lives or dies with parallel trends. And, and to some extent, not 100%, but to a, a large extent, that kind of assumption can be tested. And the evidence that emerges from that test may or may not be very strong. But if it is strong, and if it's strongly favorable then I have to be prepared to accept the results from that person's work. So that's my question. As somebody who's interested in the evidence. Yeah, that's my question. So let's go, um, I'll take a, a micro, a couple micro issues, one of which you've mentioned, uh, and I'll throw in a couple more that you refer to uh, in your book uh, or article, or that you, that you don't, but that they're prominent examples. Uh, so then I'll go up to macro. So let's, I'm going to go micro to macro. On micro, I'm going to mention... Uh, the effect of the minimum wage on employment, the effect of class size on educational attainment, the effect of health insurance on health outcomes. Those are three incredibly contentious policy issues in microeconomics. At the macro mm -hmm. level, at the macro level, I'll pick the stimulus package of 2009. So here are four issues that we as economists 
uh, are, are expected. Whether we actually can speak to them is a different question, but we're expected to speak to these issues. And so we, un, we roll out tremendous econometric artillery uh, along the lines that you've, you've mentioned. And, and you talk about these, some of them, almost most of them in your books and in your article. And yeah, I, I wouldn't describe it as tremendous econometric artillery. The, artillery. The, the methods in my book are simple and, and accessible to any oh. reasonably quantitatively sophisticated undergraduate. But they take a lot of time and effort to, to do correctly with the data and to do the kind of careful research design. As, also, as, as, as any, any, anything worth doing does. Right. Uh, and my question I don't is... I that, that we're sort of over the top here in how hard the econometric work is. So, oh, okay. So okay. I don't, That's fine. Uh, but the question then is, what have we learned in those four areas that you think uh, stands the test of time and that is replicable? There's been some fine studies. There have been some uh, – and I'll throw in uh, the effect of immigration on wages It's because you refer to the classic Mariel boat study, um, boat lift study of, of David Card. Yeah. The, uh, um, how, so, so some of the evidence in, in these areas is stronger and weaker, but there's certainly there, there is a lot of interesting evidence here that's worth discussing. That's my standard. Has anybody the been convinced? That, that, that has, anybody, be, has anybody on the other I've side? I've been convinced about many things. Uh, if you mention health insurance, for example, Americans are not very healthy compared to other OECD countries. Correct. The evidence overwhelmingly suggests that it has nothing to do with our health insurance. And we see that in two randomized trials. Extremely well done. Very convincing. Okay. Um, well, convincing to you. Where the evidence is very strong. <laughs> convincing to you. Most, I, I happen to agree with you. I, I, don't, I don't think it's a, uh, uh, a convincing case. You know, I'm, I'm not too interested in taking a poll. The, the evidence is, is clear. Uh, well, only I'm not sure who's not convinced, but I think that how about the anybody who believes otherwise has to explain away the RAND and the OHP findings. They can, can't they? I haven't heard a convincing explanation. Well, not I don't to know you. What it is. I mean, I don't want to take a poll either, except to make the point that economists are typically unconvinced by scientific, so-called scientific experiments using first-rate research design. They have it's very easy. For them to say, oh, well, the RAND study, it didn't look at a long enough distance. The Oregon study didn't have enough power. Uh, they didn't have a big enough sample. There were problems of selectivity. Uh, well, all I can say is the RAND study followed people for up to five years. And the Oregon study, certainly the standard errors are small enough. I mean, you know, there are, there's, there's informed critiques and there's uninformed critiques. There are people who have a position you know, I'm not sure what your standard is, Russ. If I can, do I? I don't really care if I convince, say, Paul Krugman. Oh, I understand. There are people with an axe uh, to grind. They're partisans. There's. Let's move to the. Yeah, but let, I think that the people who work on health insurance in the scholarly community have been enormously influenced by those findings, and you know, the people who wrote those papers uh, probably did not expect to find what they found. So. Um, I don't think they're representing the work dishonestly, and um, I agree with that. That it has to be taken seriously. Now, you know what? What I'm not sure what the standard is. There, there are certainly people who have an axe to grind. So I don't. You know, we can say the same thing about charter schools, uh, which is something I work on. There are people who are very hostile to charter schools, and there are people who love charter schools. Yep. <laughs> okay, and you know there are people who. Um, believe in market-based solutions and there are people who, who don't, you know, who are hostile to yeah. market-based solutions. And many of the people who comment on that sort of thing are very committed. I doubt that my work moves them. Um, you know, I think for example, um, Diane Ravitch, I know that she's aware of what I do what our group does. We have something called the School Effectiveness and Inequality Initiative. I, I don't know what I need to do about that. You know, I don't really see that as my problem. People who study schools and um, in my academic community pay attention to what we do. Now, you might say, who cares about that? Well, no, no, I care. when it comes time to make policy... There are people who skip over the advocates, and they do look at what the academics say. 
when our governor, for example, was thinking in, in Massachusetts, um, the, 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 the number of charter schools is capped. Uh, I don't have a position on that. I don't care personally, you know, deeply what Massachusetts does as far as its charter school policy. I just want my work to be noticed when that issue is debated. And, and when that issue was debated in 2010, our work was noticed and I was gratified by that. And, and I, I think the, re, the, the work was noticed not just because economists were saying, you know, this is worth attending to, but people found the design convincing. We were able to represent it in a way that, that was convincing to policymakers as well as to other scholars. And more so, I think, than a lot of the work that had gone before. Well, I want to come back to your your example of Paul Krugman. He does have a Nobel Prize in economics. He's not, uh, but I'll take your point that that he sometimes. Yeah, I don't writes, really want to discuss individuals uh, in any case. I, I used him as an example of somebody who's identified with a set of positions. Agreed. Agreed. And he's not. You know what? What he says is not the measure of my success. What? What? Of what course, the measure of my of success is what my peers think. But 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 by by somewhat indirectly, I think what my peers think matters. And when policymakers, you know, we're lucky to live in, 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 in the United States where the social science does actually matter for policy and, and better social science probably matters more. Well, I'm agnostic. So, I'm agnostic on that. I think we like to believe that. Uh, I think we also perhaps read that evidence a little more um, cheerily than it perhaps deserves to be read. I think we're sometimes used by politicians rather than. Uh, changing their their opinions, but let's put that to the side. Put that to the side. What, what? And I understand your point about Diane Ravitch. Certainly, partisans who, and not just I'm not talking about political partisanship. I'm talking about people who have a staked out position on a policy issue are going to be hard to change their mind. But I, I, let let's just stick with them with the with with two issues for now, which are the health insurance case and uh, the minimum wage. Mm-hmm. Do you think a majority of health economists oppose universal health insurance based on the uh, study, the empirical evidence that it's not related to health outcomes and therefore is just a waste of money? I don't think that's relevant. Uh, I don't, I don't, you know, I, again, I'm not taking, I'm not taking a poll. I, I think that many economists, again, there's people who follow this and care about it. I, I think there's an understanding that if you want to improve public health, which of course many of us do, that insurance is not the key. If there may be other good reasons to support insurance, and, and I'm not really interested in debating that. Yeah, I understand. Uh, well, how about, how about the minimum wage? Uh, do you think we have any scientific understanding of the impact of an increase in the minimum wage on um, employment based on the yeah. research design? Yeah, there's been a lot of good work on the minimum wage, minimum wage. Of course, it's not as good as the work on health insurance in the sense of there isn't a randomized trial on the minimum wage. Well, but I, I would say that the, the burden of proof has shifted towards people who think that the minimum wage has large disemployment effects. You know, because it's been hard to find those. I'm not saying it's been impossible. But, you know, I'm a labor economist by trade. I just, uh, I do econometrics as a kind of a hobby. And uh, a lot of my teaching is in labor. And, and it's clear that the scholarly work on the minimum wage today is in a very different place than it was before Cardin Kruger. Oh, I agree. I'm not saying everybody is convinced. That's true. The, but the the evidence is relevant and worth attending to. And it tends to fail to find large disemployment effects. And anybody who discusses the minimum wage has to contend with that. And I would say here there's a difference between, say, what Ehrlich did, which I don't, for the most part, you know, and again, I'm not picking on him. I don't think uh, Stigler is remembered for his empirical work either. You mentioned him early in our discussion. You know, there, there are studies that are remembered for their findings, you may disagree with the findings or you may have reasons to discount the findings, but the findings are worth discussing and thinking about and they, they have to be confronted. Okay, that's my standard. Absolutely. You may disagree with my results on charter schools, but they're worth worrying about. Totally agree. Uh, what I find depressing 
is a couple of things, which is the, uh, although I agree with you that, that sometimes people are surprised by the results that they discover in their empirical work when they do a, a research design along the lines you're talking about, very often they will just dig harder. Uh, other times they will not publish those results. And unfortunately, sometimes when those results do get published, they don't hold up. So the prop, the biggest problem I have really is, I mean, there's a theoretical argument, which is... Well, the, science is done by human beings. You know, I guess, I, I think if you come at it with a very idealistic view, you're bound to be disappointed. People make mistakes. I'm not sure economists are, you know, we were having this discussion. I was at a conference last week at Stanford about causal inference in, in business schools fields. And one of the speakers, John Rust, gave an interesting talk, and he highlighted all the mistakes that economists have made in their empirical work, you know, well-known examples of mistaken analyses. I guess the most recent one is uh, the Reinhardt and Rogoff thing. Well, we all make mistakes. You know, science is, in a, is, in a, is a human endeavor, and um, I'm not sure that we're worse than, than other fields but I'm not talking about a spreadsheet error where an Excel cell got the wrong number put in and they overstated some effect yeah. and no one no one suggests that there's I know there's a spectrum of, of mistakes some of it has to do with specification searches and that sort of thing I agree but um, you know don't let uh, the perfect be the enemy of the good I Are we always right? Are the findings always clear? Do the politicians always listen? Uh, I'm sure the answer to, to, to every one of those questions is no. Are, are things generally improving? Can you, uh, are they better in the U.S. than elsewhere? Can you point to a, a, a situation where, or a period in time where um, the quality of social science and the impact that it has on public policy uh, has been uh, better than it is now. I'm not, I, I, I'm, I'm not aware of a strong case for that. No, I'm, I'm, I don't find that necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's good for us. <laughs> I'm not sure it's good for public policy. The question is whether the precision and accuracy of what we've discovered with the kind of techniques you're talking about, whether they have improved public policy or not. They've certainly given an, given it a more um, scientific gloss. The question is whether we have gotten better. Uh, we've gotten, certainly, we have more data. We have different kinds of data. Uh, but it's not obvious to me that we've gotten better at uh, distinguishing causal impacts from correlations that may not be causal. And yet, you're right. We are the high priests of, of public policy. We get listened to a lot. And I, I look at the, again, my, my own bias, which is that skepticism. So I'm, I'm willing to concede that I may be overly skeptical when I look at, say, the single most important macroeconomic events of, of, of our lifetime and I see the lack of, of precision, uh, and I, not just precision, I see different smart, really smart people say that the effects are just not just different size but have different signs, it makes me wonder whether we're helping the debate or not. And I don't see that, those differences being narrowed over time. Am I, do you think I'm wrong on macro? Well, you know, I'm a microeconomist, so I, I tend to pay less attention to macro. I, I wish that macro, Steve and I wrote about this, I wish that macro was more empirical. And um, that macroeconomists were, were uh, more like me in the sense that they look for good experiments and, uh, and uh, try to uh, produce good designs. I think that's coming. It's been a long time coming. I, I see it in, uh, and Steve and I wrote about some of the younger scholars who, who seem to be bringing that message. It's certainly been resisted in macro. Here, here I'm talking about sort of on the intellectual side. There seems to be a, a preference for models and theory um, among uh, people who, who are trained in, in, in macro and see macro as their field. You know, I, I can't really explain that. I, I think that we'll get better evidence, but... If you draw back and um, say, uh, where is social science in macro? I, I mean, again, I, I, by what standard? Um, the, uh, one of the most influential documents in the history of, of social science is Friedman and Schwartz. Yep. And um, 
it's hard to point to another field where, at least in social science, where where anything has been so influential. I, I agree with that. And I've talked about it many times so, in here, and it's not a sophisticated statistical analysis. It's just a, a post and before and after kind of look at what they call natural experiments. It's very right, clever. But it's, it's an effort to get at the causes of the depression. No, I, I think that that uh, and inflation generally. Friedman and Schwartz and inflation. Uh, we can do better than Friedman and Schwartz with the kind of tools that are around today. But Friedman and Schwartz is a is a benchmark uh, and a, a worthy benchmark and 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 something to the credit of our discipline. But I have uh, to mention that in 1945 there was a remarkable natural experiment that World War II ended, and mm-hmm. many macroeconomists said that it would create a horrible uh, downturn. It did not. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't change them. They, I've gone back and read the AER and JP from those times. They then had an explanation for why it didn't conform to their expectations and then that they didn't really need to revise them so much. I think it's very hard in a complicated world, and macro is one of the more complicated parts of it, for people to concede um, that, their, um, that their pet theory, and this is on both sides of the uh, – I mean, I'll pick on my own views, which are very Friedman and Schwartz-influenced – Certainly many people of my ilk said that uh, we would have massive inflation by now uh, because of the activities of the Fed increasing its balance sheet. And, um, mm-hmm. I acted accordingly. I bought uh, inflation-protected securities mm-hmm. in the Treasury, and they, they did okay, actually, but they, I, was, um, I was wrong. Uh, and, um, yeah. those, a lot of people, uh, my you know, I don't, I don't react to short-term com- current events. When I was growing up, um, at least in, I try not to in my, my work or my thinking about econometrics. When, when I was growing up, um, sort of, you know, in my, my intellectual youth and I was in college, inflation was a central, was the central macroeconomic problem. And that problem in developing countries seems to have been solved. Yeah. Well before the well before the Great Depression. So that's certainly I mean well uh, before the Great Recession. I, I see that as a, well before the Great Recession, you meant. Right. That's that's yeah. what I meant. Yeah. yeah. Um I, I see that as a feather in the cap oh, of, of applied to- macro. I totally agree. I think that's one of the few things that economists can point to where they have, through empirical work, improved our understanding of something that wouldn't have otherwise been obvious to the general public or to policymakers. Um showing that um Class size has an impact on education. I wouldn't put in the same category, and I'm worried that we're making a mistake when we conclude that uh, minimum wage increases don't affect employment very much well, in the current range. Um, you know, I, I don't know. Um, class size, I would say, is part of a larger literature on human capital. Yeah. And again, I would credit economists with the prominence of human capital in in policy discourse today. And certainly the credit here has to go to Gary Becker. His contribution was not fundamentally empirical, but also to Jacob Mincer. His contributions were fundamentally empirical. And that work began in the 60s and 70s and produced a stream of compelling empirical studies that really cemented the foundations that Becker and Mincer laid. So um, if you ask me for the, the largest macroeconomic victory for economic policy relevant to empirical work, I would say it's Friedman and Schwartz and inflation. If you ask me on the micro side, I would say the general importance of human capital as a causal determinant of, of, of earnings and um, also something that the government can potentially influence. At the same time, uh, labor economists have been good in sort of showing that other things might not matter very much, like uh, training programs that the the government puts a lot of stock in don't seem to help people very much. Some do, but mo- most don't. Let me let me ask you a question though about um, randomized trials. Um, we had uh, Brian Nozick, a psychologist, uh, on the program. And yeah, I know Brian yeah. and his uh, center. So they're they're part of a larger agenda to worry about the, the replicability and credibility of of experimental results in psychology. Um, there's a been a huge interest in the last ten years over similar um, uh, randomized trials in in poor countries, trying to find out what works and doesn't work. And again, I worry that they. Um, 
they appear to have a scientific basis akin to a medical trial that's that's controls and and actually a real quote real experiment. But we do have the problem of limited sample size, and there's a serious question of whether some of the findings uh, scale, whether they are not yeah. specific to particular experiments rather than general lessons about behavior. You know, I Am have I two right? reactions to that. First yeah. of all, no, I don't think you're right. The first problem is limited sample size, if that's all you're telling me, the answer to that is in the statistics. In other words, the machinery of statistics tells you whether your sample size is large enough. The answer to that question is in the standard errors. If you think your your sample size is too small or too big in a sort of moral sense, I can't help you. But if you no, uh, want to know whether the, uh, whether the uh, results are statistically precise, I have a precise answer for that. If you want to know whether the findings generalize, that's a harder question to address. But there are certainly strategies for that. And uh, we don't have to invent them. When somebody produces an important finding in medicine, uh, other people try to replicate it. So you're seeing that happen now, for example, in microfinance. Uh, There's enormous enthusiasm for uh, microfinance in developing countries as a a tool to lift people out of poverty. Correct. And certainly a priori, it's not crazy to think that that might be useful. Yep. And we're getting a lot of evidence that it's probably not that effective and um, not just from one study. So there's a body of work building up. And that and that's the J-PAL agenda, the, the Poverty Action Lab folks, uh, some of whom were my colleagues. And, and, one of, and, and Esther Duflo, who's one of the co-leaders of that effort, was my student. Yep. She's, she's um, you know, she's not answering all questions all the time and she's not providing the most general answer at any one time but she she's promoting the idea that um, we can through uh, a series of experiments learn a lot that's useful and in particular we can come up with evidence that helps us direct resources in directions that are most likely to be useful one of the things that's important to remember this came up at the conference i was at last week is one of the big roles of a, of a social scientist is to point out what's not likely to be work, what's not likely to work. Very valuable. Uh, and, and particularly in, in a world, uh, the world that you're describing, which is full of interested parties and advocates, in some cases it's ideological, but often it's commercial or it's based on some sort of um, faith in particular strategies. So in sure. the education world, there are, uh, there's no end of, of approaches to schools that uh, people are strongly committed to, not based on the evidence, but based on a belief uh, about how students learn, or, or perhaps they even have a product to sell. We see that in the case of computer-aided instruction. Sure. Uh, in, the, in the developing country world, you have many actors, philanthropists, governments, non-governmental agencies who have an idea to sell. Maybe it's... Um, smaller family size, maybe it's a particular type of, uh, hey, of yeah. social organization, maybe it's, uh, it's, a, it's a particular technology. And it's, it's very useful for an outside party to come in and say, let's take a look at this. Um, great example recently is uh, uh, the uh, surge in enthusiasm for uh, computers in, in early education in developing countries. Yeah. Uh, many, many people became convinced and I'm talking about politicians and policymakers and scientists, that um, it would be extraordinarily beneficial to, to put uh, laptops or iPads in the, in the hands of, of young kids in, say, Peru or uh, Thailand or someplace like that. Uh, and um, others came and, and looked at that. In some cases, the idea that we should look at it, it was, was, was resisted. Uh, but uh, we have uh, good experimental evidence that that's probably not going to improve uh, outcomes in those in, the, in those settings. But in so many cases, uh, this is a tragedy. Not a you know this is to be mourned, not not celebrated. In so many cases, a particular experiment which has statistical significance. So it, it's not when I when I say you know my worry about sample sizes and um, it's not a moral issue. It's the question of whether you've sufficiently randomized across. The unobservable variables that you that you can't that you, you can't control for, and therefore it's always possible that what you have measured is is uh, 
is not really there, a lot of times those studies don't 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 replicate when when they go try to find the results. Now, agreed, it's it's nice to to open a question and it's nice to look at it and um, but I find it fascinating how often those results don't replicate, and that's a problem of development in the in those the, the randomized trials in in poor countries. It's an enormous problem in epidemiology where they're often, you know, have enormous samples, but they still have results that cannot be replicated on different samples and or across, you know, different types of people or different cultures. Um, and yet the results that, that were established initially become, uh, you know, waved around. Example was recently written about in the New Republic, the enthusiasm for deworming in Africa that seems perhaps based on a follow-up study, maybe it's not a good study, suggests that many of those findings do not, do not get repeated. There's not benefits from deworming that, that for, for student performance in education. So that's the, the issue is whether to, I'm not suggesting we shouldn't do empirical work. I'm suggesting that we should be much more humble about its reliability. I'm all for humble. Um, I think it's important not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, the, the idea that, um, Findings can be misleading. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm the first to say that, and and um, I'm a, I'm known for being a harsh critic on other people's empirical work, and I try to apply the same standards to my own work. Um, I, I don't agree with the sort of nihilistic proposition that nothing is ever learned; that it's all for naught. It's depressing, isn't it? Um, no. I'm not depressed. That's no, it would I'm be saying. if it were true. If it were true. <laughs> so. I think there are a lot of people who are, are sort of retreating into that. I'm not sure why. Uh, again, you know, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good and uh, try to keep some perspective. I, I was at a conference that uh, the Center for Open Science sponsored. And um, most of the studies that seem to generate the majority of the hand-wringing that we saw at that conference came from psychology where there would be a small sample and there'd be kind of a quirky finding. (laughs) And uh, I would have said, why did you pay any attention to that anyway? And, you know, you're probably right that the Atlantic likes that sort of thing. Yep. New York Times. Somebody does a little study about men and women, uh, you know, do this or that. Women are are actually more competitive than men or... um, Better investors, whatever it is. Under the right circumstances, uh, men will eat their children or some, you know, wacky uh, psychological uh, thing. Um, It doesn't concern me too much. I'm not sure that there's any policy that's reacting to that. I think in some sense that's just kind of a consumption good. It's Yep. It's kind of fun. I'd like yeah. to read about it myself. Find what's wrong you with know. it. Yeah. <laughs> Point out what's uh, wrong with it. Yeah. yeah, I understand. Yeah. Um you know, I'm I do I would worry if if everything we we do turns out to be uh wrong, perhaps because the researchers are dishonest or manipulating results. That's not my impression though. No, I think the bigger worry uh, is that they're honest, uh and either they're fooling themselves or um they're unintentionally fooling others about the reliability of the work we are a lot it's a lot more important i think to understand what happens when you spend 780 or 805 or whatever turned out to be billion dollars on stimulus or whether you have helped or hurt the lowest skilled people with an increase in the minimum wage is right. a but, lot but there more are plenty at stake. Of examples where there's a body of work emerging so you know in labor um it's certainly been hard and repeated good efforts to find large disemployment effects of the minimum wage i'm not saying that's the end of the story. It's been hard in repeated efforts, mostly based on random assignment, to find training programs that are that are very likely to, you know, support the lower tail of the the income distribution in any substantial way. It's been relatively easy in repeated efforts to find strong evidence that schooling boosts earnings. You know, there there's there's quite a few Findings out there that are worth paying attention to and worth taking account of when it comes time to make policy. Well, I think learning boosts earnings. I don't think we've been very good at proving that schooling does. I think that's a big challenge, especially in poor countries. And Lant Pritchett's work, I think, is very um, alarming and and probably true. Well, you need to read Chapter 6 of Mastering Metrics. (laughs) Which is all about the relationship between schooling and earnings. And we trace the history of that question. Uh, I, I, and we go through the evidence and we explain why 
you know, the picture that emerges there is reasonably convincing. Well, sometimes knowledge is, con- is correlated with schooling. I don't deny it. Um, let's, let's close. No, but I'm talking about the effect of schooling on earnings specifically, measured schooling and earnings. That's what Chapter 6 in Mastering Metrics is about. Right, but a huge and part we of use it- that as a question to walk the reader through the application of our furious five econometric techniques. And not every study is is equally well done, but there's a, a body of evidence there that's worth taking seriously. Oh, I totally agree with you. The, but again, I'm not blaming you for this. The fact that it has led to billions per, I'll just say billions of dollars being spent on schooling in poor countries with no impact is is. Uh, tragic. And I, that's not your fault. It's not the fault of that literature. It's the fact it's not the fault that that literature doesn't apply to, to certain countries in certain settings. Uh, and the fact that, say, schooling and, and education are not always correlated. Um, but I agree with you. When they are, it's, there's no doubt it has an impact. Um, I think people, even without economics degrees, believe it and believed it before we quantified it. But um, let, let me close with a, with a with a, uh, a philosophical question, because we're out of time. Um, your paper is a triumphant paper. It, it's the paper of an evangelist, mm-hmm. and I have I have a lot of respect for what you do. I don't, in fact, I don't agree with every jot and tittle of it. Isn't uh, is not relevant, and I'm not I'm not your target audience anyway. But <laughs> but but I'm I'm Diane Ravitch in econometrics to your uh, to your econometrics writings, but. Lemur and Sims, who are critical in, in response to your paper, are remarkably unconvinced of the credibility revolution. By the way, we're going to put up links to all of all of these papers, uh, as, well, as well as as well as to your book and, we'll, and anything else you want to share with us. Um, but why do you think? Uh, why do you think you you've made so little headway uh, with that audience? Is it their biases, or is it your? Uh, flavor that that's not appealing to them uh, they don't they don't find it again i'm irrelevant but they're not convinced why do you think they're not convinced and do you think that will change over the next 20 30 years as the next generation of of graduate students comes out you know i don't know uh why they're not convinced but i, I guess uh, with all due respect to lemur and sims i'm not too concerned with whether they're convinced um mostly harmless econometrics I think it's fair to say has had a huge influence on graduate education. It's sold about 50,000 copies. This is a, you know, a graduate textbook in in a specialized field. It's a source of discussion. It's widely cited. It's a reference point in scholarly work uh on in PhD programs all over the country. That's the measure of our success what PhD students are learning and what young faculty are doing. And I think by that standard, we're winning. Right. But I'm asking a different question, which is, should you be, right? You're, of course, going to be happy that your book's popular. And, of course, graduate students are going to flock to books that tell them that they're going to change the world and save it and make it better and that they have the tools to do so. But maybe you're not right. Maybe it's you're overly confident. And Lemur and Sims are saying, whoa, and you're saying they don't matter? Do you have – is it just that they're stubborn? They're, they don't get it? You know, I, I don't really want to personalize it. Um, obviously, we convince some people and others are not convinced. I think there's a lot of good empirical work today. And if we had more time, we could go through it. We've mentioned some of it that's convincing that's worth taking note of when it comes time to make policy. In my area on schools, I see two sorts of consensus emerging. One is that a certain type of charter school seems to be extraordinarily effective in urban districts. Another is that teachers matter both for achievement and earnings in the longer run. That's convincing work. It matters to scholars and it matters for policy. I think there are more examples like that today than there were when I was in graduate school in the 1980s. My guest today has been Joshua Angris. Josh, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. My pleasure. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.